Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter Easter. on our Resurrection Day, Sunday. And so we are in Revelation chapter one. If y'all turn there in your Bibles, we are going to have part two of my message, which is entitled Things Which Thou Hast Seen. And I'm going to explain that title because it's a key part of this message. I didn't go into it last week because I intended on talking about it this week. But I think that there are a lot of different passages that one can use from the New Testament to highlight the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, that's what Easter is all about. But this one is perhaps one of the most majestic because it describes Jesus in his resurrected glory. And so we're going to talk about that glory. And you'll notice in your notes, the theme is Jesus is king and his glory. And so we're going to talk a lot about that today. But before we talk about the different attributes of Christ and what's described here, let's read through the whole passage. So we're in chapter one, uh, chapter one, verse number nine, and we're going to read through to verse number 20. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, the first thing that we want to look at in the text, obviously, is the first verse, verse 9. I, John, whom also your brother and companion in tribulation... And in the kingdom and in the patience, those three words, and they seem to lead to the next word. Tribulation leads to thoughts of the kingdom and thoughts of the kingdom inspire patience. And so the first point is a king to dutifully wait for. So this whole text this morning is about Jesus as king, and we have a king to dutifully wait for. And the first point is Christ's glory for his heavenly family involves an earthly challenge. So obviously, like we talked about just as we did the Lord's Supper, Salvation is a free gift. However, when we're saved and we're brought into the family of God, we do have a calling and sometimes we forget patience comes with the job. We get used to the world and then surprised when things get hard. This difficulty comes with a solution though. The solution is the spirit and communion with the Lord. And we'll talk about that in in the next verse. But 
Something that comes to mind as I, I read this verse is that we generally here in America just don't experience the sort of thing that John experienced. I mean, uh, there might be some random example of somebody who in an antagonistic area where people just don't like the gospel, they might be arrested. But according to the law, it wouldn't be something permissible. Okay, It, it wouldn't be constitutionally acceptable for someone to be punished for preaching the gospel. However, there are examples of it happening. Um, I've heard examples of it happening in the U.S. I've heard examples more so of it happening in places like the U.K. and Australia and Canada. And so it's not too far from home now, is it? And it's coming closer. Yeah. So we're as we're reading this verse, it's becoming a little bit more real for us. But something that no matter whether you're in a country where your freedoms are starting to be restricted as far as sharing the gospel is concerned or whether you're in America where we still have our freedoms protected, something that we have to be reminded of is living in the world for a Christian is never meant to be a comfortable experience. We have strength given to us by the Lord. His grace is sufficient. We have encouragement in his word. We have a body of believers to support one another. We have a family and I'm so thankful for my family, my immediate family. I'm thankful for my church family. So God does give us strength that we need. However, we need to be reminded that when things get hard, this is what we should expect. This isn't something that should surprise us, but often it does. And that's why we need to go back to this and remind ourselves of what our purpose and destiny is. We should be able to say, like John, we are a companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patience of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't get too used to the world as if it's our home because it's not. And even though we might know that in the back of our mind, and no Christian's going to say that they're at home with the world, okay? They know better than that. But sometimes actions will belie their words, won't they? And the way they live seems to suggest to other people that this person is pretty comfortable where they're at. Whereas a Christian who is sensitive to the kingdom program and sensitive to God's call in their life, even though they can enjoy the blessings that this world brings, at the same time, we can say, it's never going to be enough. We're not going to be content until we have the Lord and we have to be patient. A Christian who's awake rather than asleep, and 1 Thessalonians 5 talks a lot about this, but a Christian who is awake is a Christian who's uncomfortable. A Christian who is asleep is a Christian who is okay with the way things are around them. But the more sensitive we are to God's plan in our lives and God's plan in the world, the more we might be tempted to despair. But when we reach that point, we have to be able to do the same thing that Paul did when he was imprisoned, finding contentment there. We need to be able to have the same patience and joy that John had when he was here exiled on Patmos for his faith. So what's the secret to that? How can we find strength if we were to find ourselves in a situation like this? Well, verse 10 tells us, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. So what we're going to see as we read this description of Jesus' appearance and John's reaction to that appearance is that we can never get used to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And often we do. We, yes, are part of the family. We're children of God. But think about John. John walked and talked with Jesus for three and a half years. I mean, and he was the beloved disciple. I mean, when he's sitting at the Lord's Supper, he's laying on Jesus practically. I mean, they're resting next to each other, very close. But yet John's first reaction when he sees Jesus here is to fall on his face as if dead. 
So what that shows is we can always learn more about God. Now, that didn't change the relationship that they had because Jesus touches him and, you know, rests his hand on his shoulder and says, fear not and praise God for that. Fear not. Those words should be treasured by us, but we certainly need to be prepared to discover our King anew every day. And the second point on your notes is Christ's glory prepares us for any struggle. And so we need to come back to passages, especially like this. We talked about last week, how this book is very special. A special blessing is afforded to those who read it. And that's because Jesus' glory comes across in a more majestic way than anywhere else in the Bible. And it was reserved in in a sense for last because I think that it's best in its sweetness. It gives us a picture of the victory that is to come. It gives us a picture of what Jesus looks like in heaven. We get to see the heavenly throne room scene and we get to see our part in that as a member of that heavenly people that is before the throne praising God. And I can't wait till I get to teach that because it's one of my favorite passages, perhaps my favorite passage in the entire Bible. Every time I read it, uh, to me, it moves me like singing a song. It fills me with a sense of victory. And so whenever John sees Jesus and he is in the spirit on the Lord's day, that's a reminder that we need to be spirit filled as we approach Jesus in his word. And as we experience more and more of that glory day by day, we need to learn of God in such a way to feel dwarfed by his inexhaustible majesty. And you know what? That may seem strange, like to be made so small in Jesus's eyes. When you think about his glory, when we think about him as ancient of days, when you think about him as the judge of all the earth, but in a way it, it fills me with a sense of peace. Because the smaller that I get in my eyes, the bigger God gets. And that means I can take all of my problems to him. And I don't have to worry. If I see how small I am, I'm not tempted to trust in myself. I'm more tempted to trust in him. And when I see that God's not just big in his power, he's not just big in his wrath, but he's big in his love. And that love is to me because he's in covenant with me as one of his children. Then I'm able to be prepared for any struggle that I face. The next verse, uh, verse number 11, Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are listed. And we're going to talk about these seven churches, not on Sundays. We're going to actually start talking about these on Fridays. Uh, We're going to move after this sermon into John, or sorry, not John, um, Revelation chapter four. And we're going to talk about future things. But, uh, In verse number 11, when it talks about Jesus is the first and the last, and then it says, what thou seest right in a book, I'm reminded of how sacred the word of God really is. And this is something that I want to challenge you to do this morning. I know you all have your Bibles with you. Just look at this book that's in your hand, okay? Or look at the text that's on your phone, okay? But to me, there's something special about having the Bible, physical copy in your hand. Is this an accessory for us? Or is this the living word of God? I mean, if we were to list at the top of our mind, what are our treasures? Obviously, I think that what would come naturally to us would be relationships. You know, I would think about the treasure that God's given me, of course, is my relationship with him, my relationship with, you know, my wife and my kids. But I I savor those relationships because I know that they're going to last. Like, I know that I'm going to be with my wife for all eternity because my wife is a believer in Jesus, too. And though our relationship in heaven is going to be slightly different, obviously, than it is down here, it's going to be lasting, right? It's not going to go away. I'm going to see my mom when I get to heaven. I'm going to see, you know, my grandfather when I get to heaven, people that I've never met. 
So I, I savor those relationships, but why do I savor them so much? Because I have a book and this book to me is a treasure. I've been reading through Proverbs again and again. It's better than, than the finest gold and the finest silver. It's refined to where there's no dross, there's no impurity in it. And it's sweeter than honey. Do we really think about the Bible that way? I feel like that when, when Solomon is writing those words in Proverbs or when David similarly writes words like that in Psalms, um, it feels like they're almost like reverently holding. I can just imagine them reverently holding a scroll and just thinking like, it's not about the, the binding. It's not about the material, but these words that I'm holding before me are the sacred word of God. And so I think that if we as Christians ever approach the Bible without a blissful sense of reverence, we're in trouble. And that's going to be reflected in the way that we live our lives. And so we may not feel as special as John who saw Jesus on Patmos. I mean, how many of y'all wish you could be there and see Jesus like that? Well, one day you will. But I mean, in a way you're like, man, but he got a, a taste of it right before he died and went to heaven. So we sort of feel left out, but think about this. When Jesus was there, the first thing that he does is he says, what you're about to see, what you see, write in a book and send it to the churches. And that's us. We're, we're part of that legacy. I mean, it, it all goes back to these churches in the first century. I mean, they're a pattern of the church age. We'll talk about their prophetic significance, but I mean, these seven churches were chosen to represent the whole family of God. If you're part of the family of God, you're part of this universal, invisible, eternal church. So the first thing that he does here before the vision is even described is put it in a book. So that way other people will be able to see what you see. And so I think about the king's indelible writ. I know that sounds kind of fancy, but again, when I read this passage, I feel like it is fancy. I feel like it deserves some majesty. And so the third point of your notes is Christ's glory is communicated through the written word. We have to understand that while we don't have some mystical visionary experience like John had, we have the written word. This is the best thing that we can have uh, apart from being in heaven. And so whenever we realize that this isn't just a bunch of scribblings by people 2000 years ago or older than that, whenever we see it as the living word of God, then it's going to, I tr truly believe it's going to affect the way we approach it. And so the same living word, which spoke everything out of nothing, breathed the written word onto these pages to recreate and reshape lives for eternity. I never really thought about that as much. You know, when you read that verse, uh, the word of God is living and active, you know, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing the spirit from the soul. You know, you read that sort of thing and you can easily pass over and say, it's just a metaphor, you know, but when we consider that the one who said, write these words, write them down and put them in a book. He's the same one that spoke everything into existence with words. I mean, he's the one that says, let there be light and there was light. And so the same powerful word, which did that. And I mean, who, who in here is not impressed by creation? He did that again with this book because people are born again and a new creation takes place. The moment the word is spoken and the word is received, which is crazy to think about, but this recreation, which involves an all-powerful act. We sometimes think about being born again, okay? It's just you know, being born again. It's a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. There are a lot of Christians who sort of treat it that way. But I mean, it, it, is, it is taking something that is non-existent and bringing it into existence, okay? We are spiritually dead without Jesus Christ. And when we receive the written word in faith, we become alive, and that same act of giving life 
that we see at creation, the same act of giving life that we see at the resurrection, which is what we're celebrating today since it's Easter. That's the same act of life-giving power that takes place when someone gets saved through the hearing of this book, not my words, this book. So that's something that's very sobering, I believe, and it's exciting anytime I open up the Bible because in a way it's like anything could happen to me. God could work in this in a way that I would never expect. I shouldn't approach the word of God and say, I got it all figured out. And that's easy to do if you've been reading it your whole life. All right, so now let's look at uh, verse number 12. In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So first thing we're going to talk about is the, the king with his people. So notice before we describe the features of the son of man, it describes him being in the midst of the seven candlesticks at the very end of the text in verse 20, we know the candlesticks are the churches. So the son of man is in the midst of the candlesticks. So the same creator that we've just been talking about and who is ancient of days, he's in the midst of the churches. We often think of Jesus as up there and yes, bodily he is in heaven, but spiritually he's unbound and he's in the midst of the church. He's in our midst right here today, blessing us as we study his word and faith. And so Jesus is the son of man. The king is with his people. And that's the fourth point. Christ's glorious son of man sustains their people or his people, sorry, on their level. So though Jesus physically is in heaven, he doesn't sustain us from afar. He is indwelling his children every day to accomplish his purpose. And as I was studying the idea of the Holy Spirit indwelling, I'm reading this book right now. I got like five pages left and it's by Charles Spurgeon. And he mentions, it's amazing to consider Jesus walking among us. Okay. 2000 years ago, like sinless God incarnate walking among us. That's pretty amazing. But Jesus was a human, right? So it doesn't seem quite as shocking because he's in limited human flesh, right? But think of the Holy Spirit again, the Holy Spirit, okay? Dwelling in us who are sinful. Charles Spurgeon mentions that it's almost an even greater miracle if you can conceive of it, that the Holy Spirit would dwell in the midst continually despite all of our sin every single day and not leave us despite how sinful we really are. I mean, he doesn't say, okay, I've got to give you your glorified body and change you all together before I indwell you. He's already indwelling us. And so the fact that the Holy Spirit continually dwells within us is something that we shouldn't take for granted. All right, uh, the next part of verse 13, it describes what he's wearing. It says he's wearing a garment down to the foot and he's girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So the paps refers to the chest. So he's got a sash that's wrapped around his chest. Um, it says that his garment goes down to the foot and both of these things represent him as king and priest. And so the fifth point is the Christ glory combines the Melchizedekian. I didn't put that one blank. That's a hard one to spell. Uh, Christ's glory combines the Melchizedekian glory of king and priest. Okay. He's presented as both here. Okay. All the commentators are in agreement. Like what he's described as is both all powerful king, but also priest coming between us and God, the father. Now, what's interesting is he's a, a superior priest than a human priest. The priest girdle was adorned with gold. So it was decorated with gold, but it was not made of pure gold. But the way it's described here is that his girdle is golden, like completely through and through. So it's not just adorned with gold. And so that's interesting thing that's pointed out by a number of commentators. So Jesus is a priest in a pure, more superior sense. Also, he's girt high. It says about the paps. That's something that 
um, priests and kings would do. And so that distinguished them from other people. When they put on their girdle, their sash was up high because they were exalted. Um, his long robe going down to his feet, that's also called attention to. Uh, that denotes priestly and kingly honor once again because kings would have robes that would have um, a longer train um, than everybody else. Kings and priests were distinguished in that way. But as much as we can highlight Jesus as king here, I just have to take for a moment, little parentheses, you could say, um, aren't you glad he's not just king? Aren't you glad that he combines both king and priest? Now, king would mean he's worthy of glory. He's worthy of submission. He's worthy of obedience. He's worthy of worship. But he's not just king. He's priest too. So the priesthood of Jesus makes him accessible to us. Guys, if I was to look at Jesus and all this glory without him being my priest, interceding on my behalf, have been washed in his blood, it would be the most terrifying experience imaginable. And the sad thing is, is that one day people will see him this way. Okay, people will fall before him as if dead, but instead of having him come over and put his hand on the shoulder and say, fear not, okay, their fear is well-placed because he is not serving as priest on their behalf because that's a choice. That's something that he freely offers. He's king no matter what we do, but whether or not he intercedes for us depends upon us. Okay, the next thing we want to look at is uh, verse 14 through 16. And this is really cool. Um, it's broken up into seven features. This is something pointed out by Clarence Larkin, the sevenfold glory of Christ. And so the first point, just to summarize all of it, is Christ's glory is terrible in its might and tender in its mercy. And so when we see the glory of Jesus, yes, we should say this is terrifying in a sense. He's king. We should be afraid of his power. However, that fear segues into a sense of calm and peace because he shows mercy to those who receive his gift. So in verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. So the first aspect is head. This represents him as eternal ancient of days. There's only one other place in the Bible that gives us a description like this of a heavenly personage, and that is Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, it describes the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days, no one disputes, is referring to God sitting on his throne. He's called Ancient of Days because he's eternal. And he is described in a figure as having white hair, not just because it represents purity. Yes, that's part of it, I'm sure. But it represents the fact that he is old, okay? And when we say old, we're not using old in the sense of he's time-bound and we can actually say he's so many years old, okay? But just as we... Okay, as we grow older, our hair changes color, okay, and it indicates to people that we've been around for longer than others. Um, that's the reason why he is described this way and called one who is ancient of days. So what's crazy about this and what's cool about this is it's a strong, probably one of the strongest indications of Jesus's deity. Okay, and we should expect that. I mean, we've already read the Gospel of John as Christians. Okay, most people who had the Gospel of John read that and they read Revelation afterwards. So. Uh, John chapter one seals the deal as far as who Jesus is, but he is called here through this description. He's indicated to be the ancient of days eternal. And so anybody that you ever talk to that denies that Jesus is eternal, take him to Daniel and say, who is that? The ancient of days. Every single person is going to tell you that's God. What does ancient of days mean? He's eternal. Take them right here to revelation chapter one. Who is talking right here? Well, that's obviously Jesus. You can't deny that it identifies him. Okay. How is he described? Well, it sounds like he's described as the Ancient of Days. Well, that should be obvious because he's already called himself Alpha and Omega first and last. 
and the first and the last are titles given to Yahweh and Isaiah. So we know for sure, without a doubt, that Jesus is described in his deity. The Trinity is a hard thing to understand. I love studying it. I love reading books. I, I love, you know, reading the theological debates, but you're never going to be able to fully understand it. The point is, though, that you cannot deny what scripture teaches, how you bring these propositions together. Jesus being fully God, okay, the Father being fully God, but yet them being distinct from one another. How you take that, put it together and reconcile it with there being only one God in the Bible. That's where the Trinity comes from. It, it is the church's best way of saying we humbly submit to what God says about himself and his word. We don't understand it all, but this is what he says. And people who try to take their human reasoning and wrap it around the Trinity, that's when heresy starts to begin. And people start to create cults. Yeah, modalism and, uh, you know, subordinationism and Arianism and all this stuff, okay? Uh, it all starts with people saying, this doesn't fit with my logic, and so I reject it. Okay, we, we can't. We can't wrap our mind around God. The next thing is the eyes. His eyes were as a flame of fire. This one's pretty simple. It represents his penetrating omniscience. He sees everything. Okay, he sees everything. And not only does he see everything, but his wrath is against sin. Okay, his gaze is blazing when he looks upon the human race and all of its sin. And I'm thankful that that fire is turned away by his mercy, which we have received whenever the Holy Spirit indwells us in washes us of our sin. The next thing is in uh, verse number 15, his feet, his feet like unto fine brass. Okay. Like it looks like they're burning in a furnace. Uh, this is a reminder that he's going to conquer and cleanse the world. Fire cleanses. Jesus's feet are fiery here. Okay. They're fiery and he is going to submit the world to himself. And when he does, he will purge out all impurity. And while a Christians can say, I have received his free gift, so I am sure to be a part of that kingdom. I'm not going to be purged away. I'm not going to perish. I'm not going to be removed from the kingdom. Um, it's, it's a glory that we can bask in if we've been saved. To someone who's not a believer, this should get them nervous. It should. His feet will conquer and cleanse. The next thing described is his voice as a sound of many waters. Once again, it's like these images can go either way. They can either give you peace or they can give you fear. Uh, the sound of many waters. How many of y'all have ever been to the beach and heard the waves crashing? To me, it sounds peaceful. Me and Katie, we love to get our coffee, sit on the balcony and listen to the waves. But waves, the ocean can also instill fear if you're out in it. Okay, there have been times where I've been out too far okay, as a kid and I could feel the current and I could feel it pulling me under and there's nothing I could do to overcome that. Okay. And there has actually been times where my dad or somebody older had to help me because I wasn't strong enough. And I'm thankful that they were there. Uh, one time, Scotty, when we went to the beach, she was only in like this, uh, it wasn't a tide pool cause it wasn't cut off completely from the surf, but, uh, she got in the water and it started to, to rush back out and she got completely pulled off her feet and fell on the water. Yeah. And at, thankfully I was there. I was about 20 feet away. I ran over, I picked her up, but she was like, oh, she's freaking out. But I'm thankful that there's no threat of me being pulled underneath the waves because Jesus, like he reached down and grabbed Peter when he said, save me, he reaches down and he grabs us. So the waves are a reminder of God's power, which brings peace to those who know him personally. Um, it says in verse number 16, moving on, uh, his right hand. So that's the next thing. His right hand represents power. It holds the seven stars. So the seven stars represent the angels. We'll talk about them in a minute. I don't think these are celestial beings. I think the angels are believers. I think they're human messengers. Uh, I'll try to argue that. 
in a minute. But if that's the case, we assume that for now, the angels being in his hand represents security. And it also represents that their message, the message of the messengers comes straight from the hand of God. So preachers and Christians always need to remember that we're not representing our own interests. We're not representing our own beliefs or opinions. We're representing the word of God. If anybody says you sound really opinionated, how do you back that up? We should be able to point them to the word of God every time. It says out of his mouth. So the next feature is his mouth. When a sharp two-edged sword. And so this one's pretty self-explanatory. It represents the word of God. Again, it clinches the idea that Jesus is God. Okay. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. It comes from Jesus' mouth. He speaks the word. So if he speaks the word of God, what does that make him? It makes him God. Okay. So that's easy enough. Moving on. It says his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Again, I think how light can be either painful or it can be enjoyable. Right now, I would love to go sit outside and bask in the light. It's a beautiful day. Okay, I intend to enjoy it to the fullest. And it reminds me of the goodness of Jesus' face. When we look upon it one day, we will be able to bask in the light. However, if you're in darkness, okay, and, and bright light shines in your face, it's extremely painful, okay? And, and you move away from it. You try to retreat. And so this also depends on your position, Will we retreat whenever Jesus comes? Well, if you have a relationship with him, no, you'll bask in his light. It's something to look forward to, not something to fear in any way. Now, uh, moving on. So we talked about his sevenfold glory, uh, his endless bounty. Verse 17, it says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. This is without a doubt a reference to him being Jehovah, the I am. I am the one who is living. I am he that is living and was dead. So that when it says, I am he that liveth, he is eternally living as the alpha, the omega, but yet he's dead. Whoa, that's kind of weird. How can you be the living one, but yet die? Well, he became son of man for us and behold, I am alive forevermore. It's as if, if you read this carefully, he's saying, I'm the living one, but I died. But since I'm the living one, that death can only be temporary. So behold, I am alive forevermore. It's exactly as should be expected. Anyone who knew who Jesus was when he was on the cross, okay, they had doubts. Their faith was, you know, trampled there for a moment, okay? They had lost faith and they were cowering in the upper room. Peter had already denied Jesus three times, but their faith was restored when they saw him back from the dead. But if we could go back in time, knowing what we know now, when we see Jesus on the cross, we would have no fear that Jesus would come back from the dead because we know exactly who he is. He is the living one. He is the I am. And so this reminds us of the endless bounty that we have in Jesus. The next point, Christ's glory was surrendered and reclaimed to exalt the condemned. He surrendered his glory and he reclaimed it. He died and rose again to exalt those who were condemned. And so I don't even need to adorn that. I don't need to express that in any more detail than what's given here in scripture. Okay. Because I think that the word of God says it well enough already, but that's his endless bounty. He surrendered that glory and he reclaimed it once again. So that way we who were condemned would be exalted. I think of uh, Jesus, you know, I said that I can't adorn it. I can't make it any better, but I will give one illustration that it, it helps me to appreciate it more. I think of Jesus being put down to the very bottom of a bottomless ocean chasm. And Jesus has in his hand salvation for us. And he swims up through that eternal separation between us and the father. And he comes out of the water 
and he stands on the shore and he lays down before the father, our salvation. Jesus didn't just pay for our sins. He did that. But we have to also understand that Jesus was giving satisfaction to God. In another sense, God deserves obedience. Have we given God obedience? No. So not only does our disobedience have to be atoned for, but God has to receive obedience that is satisfactory enough for him to let us off the hook. So Jesus had to secure infinite obedience. And so when we see the cross, we should see it not just as an act of sacrifice. Yes, but it was willingly done as an act of obedience. One that he did not have to do. It's the greatest of all obedience because it was given freely. It says in Hebrews that he gave himself a sacrifice by the eternal spirit. And so that means that Jesus gave the sacrifice as man to represent mankind. But the only way he could give a sacrifice that would compensate for our sin, it would have to be infinite. So his obedience to God was one that buys us infinite satisfaction in the father's eyes. That's his bounty that he provides for us. All right. Now verse 19 and 20, verse 19 and 20, we'll wrap it up here. Christ's glory is presented clearly to those who have ears to hear. Here is the key to interpreting this book in verse 19. If you're listening to this and you don't know, and you don't understand exactly what this book is all about and how to divide it and make sense of it. Verse 19 tells us, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. So the things which he has seen, well, we just read them. We just described them. And so this is part two of the things which are seen. And then the things which are, that would be chapter two and chapter three. This represents the church age. All these churches, not only do they represent problems, time immemorial in the church. Okay. Every single generation has seen problems like this. We may not be uh, experiencing, let's say the persecution of the people of Smyrna but we're experiencing the lukewarmness of the people of Laodicea. And so you can have these conditions existing side by side in the same generation, but they also seem to typify in a general way, different periods in the church age. And so we'll talk more about that as we go through each church, but it seems that if you follow them chronologically, Ephesus would refer to the first century. Okay. The beginning of the second Smyrna would be the time of extreme Roman persecution. Uh, Pergamos would be whenever, uh, Christianity was no longer outlawed. There was a lot of compromise that followed that, the, the mixing of the church and the state, the emergence of the Catholic church, Thyatira would represent the medieval church, which is under the oppression of Roman Catholicism. Um, Sardis would represent a reformation, a reformation, which did well, but it became a lifeless orthodoxy. Okay. It became very dry. It didn't really have a lot of missions in it. Uh, there was lots of debates over doctrine and a lot of division. And we've seen that from the Protestant reformation. Uh, the Philadelphian church would represent the missionary church. Okay. So starting in the late 1700s, the modern mission movement began. Um, and there's not a whole lot of negative things that can be said about that church because they were taking the gospel to the world and fulfilling the great commission. And then we find ourselves in Laodicea. We start to see the church going downhill, especially in the West, a place which was sending these missionaries, okay, a hundred years ago. And now people are sending them to us because of how far we've gone from the Lord. And so these uh, churches represent uh, different time periods. And then, of course, the things which shall be hereafter, that represents after the rapture. And that's why in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, he is immediately, after hearing the sound of a trumpet, 
taken into the presence of the Lord, the door of heaven is opened up. And I believe that the imagery there clearly indicates we're talking about the rapture. Also, the church is not in view the rest of the book. Uh, we also have in chapter three, a promise in, in verse number 10 to the Philadelphian church that they will be taken away from this time of testing that's to come on the whole earth. Well, when does that taking away take place? Well, chapter four, verse one is the best place to pinpoint that. And that would be the pre-trib rapture. And so uh, we have the three-part division to help us make sense of things. And lastly, and I won't spend too much time on this. I could, but I'm not going to. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars. So what are the seven stars? They are called angels and the seven candlesticks are the churches. Now that seems pretty simple, right? And in a way it is. I'm thankful that Jesus, he doesn't leave us guessing. We're like, what are the seven stars? What, what are they? He tells his angels. Okay, the key is what does the word mean? Does it mean celestial being? Does it mean human messenger? Because it's used both ways in scripture. Okay, so we have to understand that. But as far as the candlesticks, we know exactly what they are. They're churches. Okay, no debate on that by anybody, by the way. All the commentators are in agreement. Uh, so what about the angels? Well, there are two main views. They're celestial or they're human. Okay, now the problem with the celestial messenger view is whenever... John writes to these churches, he's writing to the angel and the angel seems to be a part of the congregation. So the angel is in some way bound up in the state of affairs that exists at each church. So for example, chapter two, verse one, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. And if you read it and you understand that he's writing to the angel, okay, he's talking about sins that exist in the church. And so probably the biggest problem with taking these as celestial beings is it seems that these messengers are a part of these congregations. They stand in some way as a representative of the congregation. So that leads us to the other view that these would be perhaps uh, human teachers or human leaders. Now that takes lots of different forms. Some people would say these are bishops. People generally Catholic or Anglican would say they're bishops in their sense of the word bishop. Okay. Yeah. So you have like a, a pastor of many pastors and they would use this to support their view that the church shouldn't be autonomous. There should be some oversight. Um, and that's why this becomes a little controversial. However, there doesn't seem to be evidence of churches of this entire region. Yeah. So we'll talk about that in a second, but, um, that, that is very insightful. Okay. What is meant when he speaks of the church of Ephesus, um, are multiple congregations involved in that? We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but the idea is that if you look at the New Testament, the churches do have voting power. It speaks of in the Greek, the raising of hands whenever they commission people. And so while elders were appointed by the apostles, even then when the apostles could have said, well, you don't have a choice, like I'm an apostle. <laughs> they even then gave the church the ability and the right to raise their hands. And of course they went along with the apostles appointment. But um, the idea is it appears that uh, the polity or the way of governing a church in the New Testament is congregational. So that would sort of rule out the idea of one pastor okay, over many pastors and over many churches dictating what's done. All right. So the other view is that these would be pastors of the church in the sense we have them today. There's a lot going for this view, but the problem is Ephesus and all of these churches, by the way, these cities were big cities. Okay, they were all very big centers of learning, centers of luxury, rich people, Laodicea. There were a lot of rich people there. Ephesus was the biggest okay, city in this part of Western Turkey. I mean, uh, the temple of Diana was there. Okay, lots of tourists, lots of money being made. So the medical center too? Uh, I don't know for sure. I know in, um, in Laodicea or nearby, 
Laodicea. They were known for their springs and stuff like that. So we'll get more into that when we look at the churches, because there are a lot of archaeological um insights that I don't have memorized yet because I haven't studied it in a while. But um, the idea is a church in Ephesus would involve many micro congregations. We know that because whenever Paul talks to the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20, there are many elders. There's not just one pastor. He doesn't say, all right, bud, come over here. And there's a senior pastor and he tells that person to take care of watching over the flock. There are a lot of pastors present. Now, the reason there are a lot of pastors is not because they all met in one place in one building and they had a large pastoral staff. It's more likely that these pastors were pastors of micro congregations that met in homes. Now, they did on occasion meet together if there was a person rich enough to afford the space. Okay, but in general, space was not easily found. So they would meet in their homes. The elders would be pastors who'd be responsible for teaching these homes. Paul in chapter 20 of Acts goes from house to house to house to house. Okay, so that's what he does. He's going to different congregations. They have their own teachers, but he's an apostle making sure these new believers are learning sound doctrine. He's making sure the pastors are teaching that doctrine well. And so what this means is when it refers to the church of Ephesus, it probably is a collective term. So when it's saying the church of Ephesus, it would be like saying the church of Jasper. Now, how many congregations are actually in Jasper? A lot. Now, some people would say, oh, well, that proves it. Okay. If we're talking about many congregations and there's only one angel, that would be a bishop. You know, like the Catholics would say, we don't. Okay. But that's, they would argue that's the way it should be. But here's the problem with that view. If the word church, which is singular, represents many congregations in Ephesus, then the word angel can also not be exclusively talking about a single leader but it's referring to each leader respective to their congregation. So it would be like somebody writing a letter. Okay, let's say you're in China and you write a letter to the pastor of America. Now it's not talking about one single pastor over all America. It's talking about anywhere there is a pastor in America, you need to hear what I have to say. So numerous commentators argue the angel here doesn't have to be restricted to one single individual. And I would agree with that. Okay, but there's one final view here. Um, but before we go on to that one, there's one last tidbit here, Timothy and Titus, we often think of them as pastors. They weren't strictly speaking pastors. They appointed pastors. Titus appointed elders in Crete. Timothy was left in Ephesus. He wasn't left to be an elder in the sense of pastoring an individual church. He was there to make sure that the churches in that city were teaching what Paul taught them to teach. So he's a go between he he's, he's well, bishops. Bishops would argue they're the same, but the problem is, okay, they don't have an official commission from an apostle because apostles don't live today. Okay, so this was a time where apostles were still alive and they had the right to send delegates who would represent their interests. So they would send people like Timothy and Titus. Now, if Timothy came around saying, listen, pastor, you preach this way, the pastor was obligated to do it because Timothy was speaking on behalf of not just anybody. He was speaking on behalf of an apostle. So listen, if there was apostles still living in the world today and they can't be everywhere at once. Okay. Let's say Paul is in China. He's still around today. And he was to send a, a, a delegate to here in Jasper and say, all right, preachers, make sure you're preaching this because Paul told me this is what God has told him, you know, is sound doctrine. This is what you ought to teach. We would be obligated to listen to Timothy, not because Timothy is a bishop in a Catholic sense, but because he is an appointed delegate of an apostle. Okay, so it's different than today where bishops are not commissioned by an apostle. They would claim 
apostolic succession. That's another issue for another day. But this is a unique situation where maybe the angels are not pastors in the regular sense of the term. Uh, maybe John, who's on this island, okay, has appointed people to oversee these different areas. So he's got somebody. So let's say one individual. He's got one individual who has charge of Smyrna. So what's that? Each in each region. Yeah. So Smyrna has lots of churches in a big town. He's got a person who goes around and makes sure as a missionary. Okay. He's sent by an apostle and I'm going to make sure each pastor is doing what John expects them to. And if he finds out that they're not, what does he do? He goes back to John and he tells them just like people went back to Paul and told them what was going on in Corinth or what was going on in Ephesus. So the angels may have been missionaries like that. But finally, the last one, and this is where we'll wrap it up. Okay. It's possible that angel here simply represents everybody in the church. Now, some would say, well, they've already been represented as candlesticks. So to say the candlesticks represent the church and then the angels represent the church, that seems redundant. But as many commentators have pointed out, and I think they're onto something, whenever it speaks of the candlesticks, it's talking about their function. It's talking about their ministry. It's talking about the way things are going in that ministry, the positives, the negatives. It's, it's talking about the church in an impersonal sense. Okay. However, the, the word angel is a personal term. Okay. And so it refers to people. And so we are all right now as a part of Ark of Hope Baptist Church, we are called to be messengers. Now in a, in a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for in a narrow way, I am called to be a messenger to y'all to teach. Whenever Matt teaches, he's also doing the same thing. Okay. But there's another sense in which every single member here is a messenger. Okay. And so it would not be out of the question for the Lord when he's speaking of these congregations to say as a whole, when I'm talking about the people, not, not the church and its ministry, but the ministers. Okay. The ministers are like angels to the world and they represent the gospel to those that they live in the midst of. Just as Jesus is in the midst of the church, we are in the midst of the world and he holds us in his hand and we go forth from him, commissioned by him to be lights, just as stars are lights. And so I think there's a possibility of a combination of views here. I think it's likely that whenever this letter was given to somebody, it was given to somebody of importance in that area. Okay. Whether it was someone like Titus, you know, a missionary pastor, or it was given to a pastor individually. I don't know. Okay. Um, I think that it does go to representative people, leaders, but I think that we would be in error to say that only pastors are leaders and messengers. He didn't just commission the pastors to take the gospel to the world. He took everybody in the church and we're all part of the same body, just having different functions. And so, um, with that, let us go out this week and do our best to be angels from the Lord. Not in a heavenly messenger sense, because I, I'm, I'm not Gabriel. I'm not Michael. I'm not like them. Okay. I am a human being made in God's image down here on earth, but let us fulfill the same role that they have by sharing the gospel, which is of heavenly origin to those around us. God bless. Have a happy Easter.